You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 30th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, the G20. Is this year's summit basically populist Glastonbury? My guests, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Ben Ryland and Georgina Godwin will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Australia teaches one belligerent nativist agitator that border protection works both ways, dogs are scientifically demonstrated to be morons, and... Your house is a fine little house, Jack. Are you allowed to speak along the way? I was thinking there might be rules. Let me put it this way. Very few make it all the way without uttering a word. Who are the people who still care enough about Lars von Trier to be shocked by him and sticking with Scandinavian cultural figures who just keep flogging the same idea? Yes, it's that time of year. Monocle's Christmas market starts tomorrow. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Ben Ryland and Georgina Godwin. Welcome all to the programme. We start in Buenos Aires, where the latest G20 summit has the rest of the weekend to try to recover from the image of Russian President Vladimir Putin exchanging a jovial high five with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Whatever may or may not be decided by the summit itself, it is a potentially interesting, which is to say extremely depressing, illustration of the current state of global governance with the traditional bulwarks of the Western democratic order, the United States, the United Kingdom and Germany, all in recess for one reason or another. Um, Georgina, was this always going to be something of a, a populist jamboree, do you think? Well, I think the world order has changed so utterly since the first 2008 uh, G20 summit when everybody came together because of the financial crash. Uh, and at that time, everybody was just looking for economic stability. And that's what G20 is meant to be about. Ten years further on, of course, we have all these populist leaders now in charge. And in fact, what's happening now is people are, particularly Merkel, I think, scrambling to try and make this about global stability rather than just the the economy. Well, global stability, uh, yes, it's a nice idea, but it's uphill work at the moment. Uh, Fernando, this is this is happening not that far away from your home country, at least on the same continent. Uh, but Brazil's new, well, he's not the president yet, I guess, which is the tricky bit, which is why Jair Bolsonaro isn't going. Um, Michel Temer is. Is there any point? Well, there, there's not much point. In fact, uh, Michel Temer, I mean, he's just meeting two prime ministers, Scott Morrison from Australia. <laughs> On the subject uh, of uh, people uh, whose uh, appearance is, <laughs> is somewhat of debatable utility. Exactly. But it's interesting because John Bolton was in was in Rio and he went to Bolsonaro's house, uh, I think, a few days before, uh, you know, the G20. And I think the Brazilian foreign policy will change a lot under Bolsonaro. Uh, I, I mean, he has a very close relationship with Trump. He supports all Trump's policies. I mean, I think it's going to be one of the first times that Brazil and, and, and the US will have more or less the same view on 
on the world in a way. Uh, and and even uh, you know Netanyahu already said that he's going to be the he's going to attend Bolsonaro's inauguration. So yeah, it is it, it is funny. I think Brazil and Mexico as well because they will have a new president to be inaugurated tomorrow. Uh, I mean, what's the point of Pinha, <laughs> Enrique Pinheiro to be there in a way? It's quite strange. But they, he did sign something with NAFTA, so perhaps that's the reason why he went there as well. Well, this is the replacement for NAFTA, the precise acronym of which currently escapes me. It's UMSCMA or something, isn't it? U.S., I, Mexico, I think, Canada. Yeah, we're just calling it NAFTA too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's let, let. Well, I, I think we should continue to do that, not least because that would obviously annoy Donald Trump. Um, ben, so far the the cameras have been drawn, unsurprisingly, to uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. This is his, I guess, tentative welcome back into the international fold. Not as tentative as might be preferred following the the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, it is a question that all other leaders attending will have to face. Theresa May, the UK Prime Minister, has said she will meet with him. Should she, and indeed should anybody? Well, I don't think anything can be gained by simply not meeting with him. Uh, it reminds me of uh, not long after uh, MH17 took place, uh, the the plane that was shot down over Ukraine, and the Prime Minister at the time of Australia, Tony Abbott, had promised to in his words, shirt front Vladimir Putin over the issue. And I think a lot of Australians in 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 uh, theory supported that idea because when someone in a very powerful position has done something demonstrably monstrous, they need to be confronted. And when you're the leader of a nation such as Saudi Arabia, ignoring them isn't going to make it go away. Uh, if we're talking about old-fashioned bullying terms, you've got to confront them, don't you? So my hope is that Theresa May would confront uh, the Saudi crown prince and that all of the other leaders there would confront the Saudi crown prince in a way that doesn't involve a very public high five. Might that not be uh, just refusing to trade with them, perhaps not to sell him arms, I think would be the least hypocritical way forward. Well, absolutely. Uh, in a in a global in global diplomacy speak, yes. Uh, if we're talking about uh, uh, speaking to someone at an event, however, I do think there still needs to be some degree of dialogue. Okay. Well, there will doubtless be more on the G20 on tonight's daily at twenty two hundred. But let's look now at Australia, the Home Affairs Department of which appears to have decided that the country is good. Thanks for tedious attention seekers, and accordingly denied a visa to wearisome far right provocateur Gavin McInnes. Mr. McInnes co-founder of Vice now leads the Proud Boys, an organisation devoted to the debatable proposition that life is intolerably tough for heterosexual white men. He had been due to undertake a speaking tour with his approximate British equivalent, Tommy Robinson, and similar dreary whiners. Um, Fernando, I, I find it desperately hard to care about this. Well, but, but I think those, those things matter. I, I know... You know, it's a very controversial situation, and I'm sure perhaps there might be some disagreements over here. But I just find that when a country bans someone, and I think there are some people that should be banned depending on what they do, it can only fuel, I mean, you know, the far right members in Australia. I'm sure Australia also has, you know, some members. Well, so we, 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 we there's a reasonable hmm. argument with which I'm increasingly yeah, sympathetic which that one? it would fuel that far right tendency more if he did turn up. And more to the point, People like McInnes and other other people of his ilk who all claim they're about freedom of speech don't understand how it works. Australia is not stopping him from saying anything. Australia can't. He is free to write and broadcast and 
his words and voice are freely available within Australia. He's they're just telling him you can't do it here. It's the same. It's the same whinging when these people get thrown off Facebook or Twitter. They say my freedom of speech is being banned. No, it's not. A private corporation, or in this instance, a country, has said there are standards of behaviour. Tough luck. Well, that that's true, and I think the main problem is that he might, you know, he, he might create more violence in the country. In that sense, I agree. But I just think we should be careful not just start banning like everyone to come to your country. Maybe one of the key things, though, is uh, how much this would fund the far right. So when um, uh, Tommy Robinson was trying to go off to the United States, or the man we also know as Stephen Yaxley Lennon, I think which, is his which real is, name. is indeed his real name. Um, so he was actually at the time the Guardian said that he might have earned a million pounds for that trip, which would made him would have made it one of the, the best funded far right events ever. So this this trip now in Australia that's not happening, and indeed Yaxley Lennon is not going on it either. Um, they were charging people to come to it to, and it would have been a major fundraiser and I think whatever one's view on, on freedom of speech, it's quite a good thing to shut down the funding of, of movements that have said that they actually want to assassinate their enemies, they want to kill women, they want to rape people. I mean, these are things they've actually said out loud and I don't think that we should uh, put in, in uh, give them the structure to earn any money to kind of help this on its way. I mean, Ben, the money thing that Georgina raises there, that does strike me is key. I, I am myself unpersuaded that McGuinness, uh, Robinson slash Lennon or most of their ilk actually believe the half of what they say. It's just, it's a grift, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's no different to Alex Jones on Infowars. I mean, you can't look at someone <laughs> and then think that this person seriously believes all of this garbage. They are called provocateurs for a reason. They are career pot stirrers. That's all they do because they need attention. It all comes from this very egotistical manner in which uh, they go about all of their business. Um, that I, I do understand both sides of this argument because I, I can look at this and see, you know, this came about after a petition and I think there were just over 80,000 signatures on this petition. So there was a, some degree of pressure on the government to do something about this guy before he got to their shores. And you can imagine if, if, there, was a, if there were a petition on the other side, uh, so let's imagine that Donald oh, Trump was circulating a petition uh, about <laughs> Hillary Clinton. You know, you would, you would hate to think that a government is going to cave under pressure and then do something uh, uh, completely irresponsible just because of public pressure. You, it's quite easy to rally public pressure when you're willing to do the things that other people won't do. So uh, I can understand that concern, but at, at the same time, governments have a role to be responsible about how they go about their business. And governments, uh, we elect them to make these these tough decisions. And I don't have any problem with with uh, with there being some person whose role it is to make decisions on who is allowed to come into Australia based on what set of values that Australians have agreed upon collectively. Fernando, is this this still a hill you are willing to die on? No, actually, you know, you, you you're kind of convincing me. You know, I, 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 I just find it's a terribly difficult situation because even if Australia, let's say, if they allowed uh, you know him to go to Australia, actually, there will be a backlash against the government as well. So it is a difficult position as a government to allow or to ban someone. So I think you do have to look case by case. I, it's I, in, I, and, it's and, important and to note that that it, just just briefly, the, mm. the FBI has has labelled mm. this group an extremist mm -hmm. organisation. So 
So he's not just some nutbag in his mother's basement, you know, getting on Facebook all the time and harassing people. These are seriously well, deranged probably, people. Ironically, without Facebook, he probably would be. <laughs> and he's been banned by Twitter. And of course, um, Robinson's been banned um, by PayPal, can't use PayPal at all. What I also think is really interesting is the way that your fellow country people have really risen to this. And I think if you look back at the the whole gay marriage debate in Australia, it, we saw this huge um, um, swing of, of just public opinion, people really pushing uh, to get their point of view across and to get the government to listen to them. And I think we're seeing that again. And I think it's fantastic that Australians are so engaged with this and really willing to, to speak out about it. I don't know. I, I do think, um, I, I think to sort of boil down a bit what Ben was saying there, that a, a government of a country such as Australia, who, whose record on issues like freedom of expression is pretty solid, is it's entitled to say, and it's on solid enough legal and moral ground, I think, to say, regard an individual case and just say, yeah, this this, this bloke's not going to help. Well, we have uh, we have racial discrimination laws in Australia. We have all, all sorts of laws that do, in effect, govern what people can say. And of course, you can go out, as you suggested, Andrew, you can go out and say whatever you like. But as the old saying goes, freedom of speech does not equal freedom of consequence. And we've had columnists for uh, Rupert Murdoch's newspapers uh, get hauled before the courts because of things they have written in their columns. And, of course, that is going to ignite those arguments on the side of people who say, this encroaches on my freedom of speech. But... In 2018, in a democracy such as Australia, actually, no, it's not okay to incite hatred based on race or based on someone's sexuality and and so on. Australia has moved beyond that, and I'm quite happy about that. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Ben Ryland, and Georgina Godwin. Coming up next, and sticking with the subject of indefatigable boring grandstanders, Lars von Trier has done a new thing. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Ben Rylan, and Georgina Godwin. Earlier this month, you will recall, over-ambitious American missionary John Allen Chow was killed trying to spread the good word to the inhospitable tribesfolk of North Sentinel Island off India. Though the Sentinelese have doggedly resisted contact with the outside world for 30,000 years, even they would be unsurprised to learn that Lars von Trier has made a willfully gruesome film and that controversy has ensued. (laughs) 
Von Trier's latest exercise in pointless unpleasantness, a serial killer drama entitled The House That Jack Built, prompted walkouts at Cannes. The fact that it prompted walk-ins is more surprising. And now faces sanctioned by the Motion Picture Association of America over the showing of an unrated director's cut of the film. Uh, ben, our, our resident cineast, uh, I, I, I invite you to pronounce first on this. I, I mean, I know I started the discussion of the last item by basically saying, for the love of God, who cares? But for the love of God, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's what is so eye-popping about this is that it's such a deliberate attempt by Von Trier to stir up more controversy. So is literally everything he's ever done. Well, exactly. I I mean, look, it is, he is a pretentious filmmaker, and uh, I can recall when Dogville came out. I'd have used a word other than filmmaker, but carry on. (laughs) I'm guessing that from the the tone of your intro just there. Um, But, but, uh, look, I remember when Dogville came out, and that was that film that, for some reason, had Nicole Kidman and Lauren Bacall running around on a blank, empty soundstage, where instead of sets, they had the uh, lines drawn with chalk on the floor. So when Nicole Kidman opened a door, you'd see her opening the door in mime and just the sound effect of a door opening. Don't know why, no reason, that's just how he decided to make the film. And I, if I'm correct, I recall David Stratton, the excellent Australian filmmaker, labelling the film utterly pretentious. Um, and, you know, that is, that's his style of filmmaking. People love him for it. Fine, Dancer in the Dark is quite a good film. But there are a lot no, of films isn't. by Von Trier that are simply there to, to cause outrage, to offend people, to, to disgust them, to show a lot of hardcore sex, which, you know, fine, don't care about hardcore sex in cinema, that's, that's fine. But is it there for any reason other than to shock people? It's very egotistical. I do like Antichrist, though. What the, uh, a the film? film the or, film, uh, sorry, the film. I, I please. Thought, thought the, the, the conversation had taken a surprising <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> turn. Yeah, don't worry. Bronchia, um, though himself, has said he did an interview recently, and he said it's quite important not to be loved by everybody because then you've failed. He well, said, "Box ticked." <laughs> he said, "I'm sure if they hated the house that Jack, that Jack built enough, though, uh, it, I, it, if it gets too popular, I'll have a problem." He said, which I think is is quite interesting. And I think and here's a worrying trend that seems to be coming up in my conversation, but it does come down to money again because there are two releases here and one is rated and one is not so one you can take um, people over the age of 17 can go to and the other is what used to be called x-rated i.e it's the director's cut it's completely and utterly graphic both are being released the the director's cuts coming out first uh, and you can buy that film and the other, and you can see it in the cinema. The second one, the, the rated one, you can rent uh, or you can see it in the cinema. So it's not going to pull in huge amounts of crowds, but the people that love Von Trier are going to take both, aren't they? And it's just, it's a money spinner. It's a way to make sure that this gets publicity, but also it just gets those those um, the, those box office receipts coming in. Oh, oh, Fernando, would we not be living in a happier world if Lars Von Trier made a film and the world just went, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. Yes, we would. I mean, even though I'm not... You I know, realise I, we may be part of the problem. I, 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 I don't hate, you know, Las Von Trier, I have to say that, but maybe I'm a little bit innocent, but I, I fall for those kind of Von Trier <laughs> stories because I worry about censorship. I mean, I don't want censorship. It's I'm not advocating for censorship. No, but, I'm, I'm advocating for, like, nobody to pay any attention. Oh, no, true. But but but, but, but to be honest, I understand what, why has the film been X-rated as well, you know? So I, I know, especially in the US and even here in the UK, 
okay, certain films have been banned and you, they could, you could only show them after in, in the 90s or something. So, so I, I, I just would like to understand why those films have been banned. And, and, and again, I think this is worrying. I mean, he, we're talking about Lars von Trier, but it could be about, you know, a Scorsese film or whatever. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think censorship is a, a very worrying thing, but it needs to exist for a, a certain reason. You know, censorship needs to exist about context. There are films that have been produced in the past that have shown, uh, that, that have really just been, you know, uh, glorified reasons for showing extreme brutality against women or about or against minorities. And, you know, these are the sorts of things that shouldn't be seen by people. They should never even be produced. And those sorts of things don't deserve an audience. And that's where the classification boards really come in. There is another interesting debate going on at the moment over at Netflix in regards to a film that played at Cannes actually called Girl from a Belgian film director. It's about a, a, a transgender person and it does involve a scene of, of full frontal nudity and the transgender person was 15 years old when this was shot. So there is some debate about whether that scene should be edited out before it goes on Netflix and Obviously, I'm on, on the camp that says absolutely not, because the context of this film is actually very, very productive. It's adding to a very constructive argument uh, that that makes the issues facing transgender people more of a household thing. It, it, it allows us, who may not have a lot of contact with transgender people, to have a deeper emotional understanding of what it must be like. And my hope is that it does get to Netflix without that scene being edited out. Uh, but of course, as you say, Fernando, it can get completely out of hand. There have been many, many cases where uh, films that are trying to ha- articulate a constructive argument have attracted enormous outrage that's completely misplaced often by people who never even see the film so we do need to be very responsible about it Oh, you're pointing at me. I'm. Most, Sorry, I, so I, what, I, I, what, I thought you were what, you were poised to leap into the discussion. I thought. Well, read more books is really what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I mean, Ben, I think you're absolutely right. But also, you know, just don't go and don't go and watch the movie. It's going to upset you. Don't go. I do think that the that the the rating system is necessary, particularly where children are concerned. You've you've got to know what it is you can and can't take a child to if it's going to be upsetting or not. But what I I do find slightly odd is that when you go and see a film, I went to see okay, whispering this, Mamma Mia too. Oh. Um, <laughs> And <laughs> now, now that should that should be banned. <laughs> I went to see that, but the, one of the trailers was for the new Elizabeth Salander movie, uh, and it was incredibly violent. And I was only at Mamma Mia because I wanted something really, really feel good. I didn't want to see cars exploding and somebody jumping off cliffs. It was just kind of you. You, you might have wanted to see that after Mamma Mia. <laughs> <laughs> and can I just add one last point here? My problem with the censors as well, especially in the US, they seem to say fine for violence, but no for sex. If there's a little yeah, bit of nudity, eating, well, mm. I would, le- I would, I would allow my daughter or son to watch a film of sex, but not to violence. Okay, well, let's move along. Uh, sneering at apparently fatuous scientific studies is a time-served fallback of lazy hacks and should therefore generally be avoided. However, it must be hoped that the two boffins who authored a recent paper in the journal Learning and Behaviour are not anticipating a Nobel Prize for their revelation that dogs are, in the main, idiots. They analysed literature comparing dogs to various other species and concluded 
concluded that the canine genus is, I paraphrase somewhat, basically a bit dim. They could, of course, have discovered this by interacting with any given actual dog. Um, I do wish to make I do wish to make it clear that I have nothing against dogs. I'm very fond of them. I am pro dog. I there we had them as a family as I was growing up. My brother owns one. My dad owns one. Actually, most of my relatives do now that I think of it. I'll be seeing a lot of them over Christmas, all of which I'm very fond of. I like them. They're, they're just, I mean, they're, they're not very smart. Okay, fake news, fake news. <laughs> I am about to storm out of here in a huff because she did, firstly, it didn't say that dogs were dim. It just said that I perhaps d- they were I did say I, I was paraphrasing. <laughs> it did say just, just that perhaps they weren't as intelligent uh, compared to other animals as we had given them credit which, for. Which, which, which other animals, Georgina? I think this is a low bar they were being set and they failed to clear it. <laughs> I mean, the, the point she was making is that, that lots of animals have amazing things that they can do. So dolphins, for instance, or, or um, uh, I don't know, hyenas. She, there was one example. Hyenas do something amazing with their, I don't know, their jaws or something. Who knows? Um, but uh, that, that dogs are very good. But of course, we notice it more because these, these dogs are, are kind of with us all of the time. But I think the important point she was trying to make is that dogs are special, but we mustn't anthropomorphize them. Um, they're special like any other animal's special but she said they're not small little furry humans they're carnivores they're social hunters and they're domesticated animals they have different needs and we have to respond to them in that way and i think the minute we start dressing them up in silly things and saying that you know little tootsie uh, knows exactly when mummy's feeling blue well maybe maybe <laughs> she does but it, it, it's not because of super cute human super canine powers <laughs> five stars to the person who named their dog tootsie though i think that's a great name <laughs> um, do, 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 does anybody else wish to make a case for the intellectual capacities of canines? Well, I was going to do what Gina said, anthropomorphize the dogs because I said, I, I do think sometimes they play stupid for love because, you know, maybe they, they know that if they no. play a little bit dim, then we're going to give them food no, and I, I cuddles. Think, I, I think it's pretty sincere. So, in fact, our last guest wasn't able to join us today and that was Bella, my Springer Spaniel, who does, as you know, <laughs> Fernanda, play stupid for love. She, she lo- lies yes. on her back and just lets you love a classic her, so. example. <laughs> I mean, uh, but sadly, she she sent her bitch of an owner instead. <laughs> Even Andrew. we humans play stupid for love. I'm just I'm just pleased that this has democratized the uh, the the playing field. I think for for animals because I'm I get a little bit sick of of doggy people acting as if dogs are so superior to cats. And I have to say, so does my tuxedo cat Lamington. He's he's absolutely <laughs> oh. convinced that that is a, a, a complete myth. Uh, he's he's very intelligent indeed. He can even open doors. What's a tuxedo cat? A, a cat that looks like it's wearing a tuxedo. I thought, like you were go- I, I thought you were going to ask what's a lamington. Ben, are you going to explain to our non-Australian listeners why that is an outstanding name for a tuxedo cat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, to put it in a, in a nutshell, a, a lamington is an Australian cake. It's a sponge dipped in chocolate wrapped in coconut. I'll let you join the dance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we go, uh, and finally tonight, a reminder that Monocle's Christmas market is happening here at Midori House this weekend. It's actually happening right now. There's people unpacking stuff and putting up trees and they're just the uh, they're just the organizers don't no one come down yeah don't, just don't yet. we're not come ready down now and i've i've got to write the daily apart from anything else I, I i'm not i'm not in a mood to receive guests uh, but it, but it is starting tomorrow does anyone know anyone know what time off the top of your i think it's going to start at 10 and i can tell you that because i will be on air alongside our editor-in-chief tyler relay at 10 we'll be doing a special edition of the stack which is in fact produced by ben rylan who's here with us now well indeed the whole team is here because fernando augusto pacheco is uh, is the 
show's uh, uh, full-time producer. I'm just stepping in for the special edition tomorrow. It's all connected. In, indeed, it is. A, it will be a lot of fun, though. It's a full one-hour edition, and it will be live from 10 a.m. Uh, we'll if, be if reviewing people, the year in media. If in people fact. come to the Christmas market, will they be able to watch you broadcasting? Will they be able to come in here and press their faces up against the glass? Well, in exactly. fact, we'll be doing it from outside. I think that, that particular really? program will be Amazing. broadcasting from near the reindeer. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, next to the reindeer. Yeah, does, is anyone confident of what the livestock roster actually is? We're not joking about this, by the way, listeners. There, there, will, be, there will be creatures. There will definitely be creatures. Uh, There are reindeer at some point during the weekend. There are also baby goats when there aren't reindeer, if you see what I mean. But I can tell you that my dog will be coming tomorrow. She will be broadcasting. And there'll be mulled wine as well. There there will be baby goats, reindeer, Georgina Springer Spaniel Bella. Mm -hmm. Um, Is is, is that all? Santa. Uh, Santa, Santa of course. And plenty of things to buy. It's not not just a show. There is a hotel. It's, it it's, well. not, it's not one of those... It's actually my favourite thing about Christmas is those tabloid stories about the parents who've gone to some Christmas market or Christmas fair, which turns out to be completely terrible. Uh, I wish to make it clear that Monocle's Christmas market has never <laughs> featured in any of those stories or ever no. um, Fantastic retail opportunities. I mean, a lot of our sort of partners and friends are here with really high quality, really lovely stuff. Just been absolutely taken by the glasses manufacturer. That looked fantastic. It did. Um, I'm sitting in a really odd position. So I'm sitting with my back to the thing so I can't see what the clock says. Um, <laughs> that's, it's kind of it's slightly freaking me out to if, be if, in the wrong if, room. Not quite time if, to if jump could, on the stack just if, yet. If you, could, if you could pad that. frantically for another 65 seconds, that would be amazing. <laughs> well, I can tell you one big Christmas story from me. And here it is. So and, uh, people often ask what your Christmas tradition is. Well, mine generally is being here. I often bring in my family and my dog. Um, but the other thing is that uh, I, I will have you know that you are in the presence of Christmas royalty because my great aunt is Mrs. C.F. Alexander. Uh, she died back in 1895, so we weren't close. Um, condolences. Um, but, um, uh, sorry for your loss. Uh, but she wrote Once in Royal David City and All Things Bright and Beautiful and um, oh various other things. There is a Green Hill far away. And so I do feel whenever I hear these, sadly the royalties are not coming to me. Uh, but a little bit of family pride when you hear these songs. Uh, and I think that if one wants to celebrate Christmas in a truly lovely doggy way, you could also uh, support the Battersea dog zone. Well, I don't know where this dog stuff's coming from. Um, <laughs> Friday the 7th of December, St Luke's Church in Chelsea. You can take your dog to sing carols and you can maybe even sing a carol that was written by my great aunt. Oh, down, to the, <laughs> down to the second, Georgina. 1829 on the buzzer. With my back to the clock. With your back to the clock. If you want the job done right, hire a professional. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Ben Ryland and Georgina Godwin, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Research by Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's the menu with Marcus Hippie. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. I'll be your host for that as well. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Goodbye. Have a great weekend. Do come to the Christmas market Saturday and Sunday here at Midori House. Midori House.